This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit biblicalblueprints.org to download this book or purchase a physical copy. Seven Biblical Principles That Call for Infant Baptism by Philip Kaiser, Ph.D. Principle 1. The Old Testament says a lot about baptism. Let's not ignore it. Unless the New Testament explicitly changes an Old Testament command or practice, it continues to apply. Matthew 5, 17-19, 2 Timothy 3, 15-17, 1 John 2, 6-8. And such changes were already anticipated in the Old Testament. Acts 26, 22, Hebrews 3, 5, Acts 17, 11. Appendix B demonstrates that infant baptism of both boys and girls began at the time of Moses. This application of the sign of the covenant has never been revoked. Instead, the New Testament treats Old Testament baptisms as being part of, quote, the foundation, end quote, upon which Christian faith and practice is to be built, Hebrews 6, 1-3. We cannot, quote, go on to maturity, end quote, until those, quote, elementary principles, end quote, are mastered, Hebrews 6, 1. This is why Hebrews connects Christian baptism, Hebrews 10, 22, with Old Testament baptisms, Hebrews 9 and 10. The Old Testament speaks a great deal about baptism. The Ethiopian eunuch asks about baptism based on the passage in Isaiah that he was reading, Acts 8, 28-39, with Isaiah 52:15, And the Jews expected the Messiah to baptize, John 1, 25, based on such passages as Ezekiel 36, 25-27, Isaiah 52:15, etc., too many people consider themselves New Testament-only believers, but it is important to realize that the only Bible of the Church for several years was the Old Testament, Acts 8, 32 and 35, 17, 2 and 11, 18, 24 and 28, Romans 16, 26, 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17. If we are to be Bereans, we will search the Old Testament scriptures as well as the New to see whether this doctrine of baptism is true. Acts 17.11 Thus, I would encourage you to read all seven principles in this booklet since they all interact with various dimensions of the Old Testament teaching on baptism. Paul made clear that he had been, quote, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, end quote. Acts 26.22 Compare Hebrews 3.5 Acts 17.11 Thus, every New Testament doctrine, including baptism, was anticipated in the Old Testament so that the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. Both Baptists and Paedo-Baptists admit women to the sacrament of sanctification, Passover, Lord's Supper, because they have evaluated the evidence of both the Old and New Testaments. On every doctrine, we must submit to the authority of the whole Bible. Without this first principle, not only would women be excluded from the Lord's Supper, but we would have only one guideline for the degree of consanguinity. You can't marry your mother, we would have no prohibition of bestiality, and we would be without guidance on a host of societal and family issues. It is my plea that those who study the issue of baptism be just as fair in evaluating who can be admitted to the sacrament of justification by faith. 
all of the principles in this booklet should be given equal time in your effort to be Bereans. So, rather than asking, where does the New Testament repeat the command to apply the sign of the covenant to children? We should be asking, where does the New Testament clearly remove children from the sign of the covenant? Principle 2. Our children have always been in the covenant. Every covenant that God has ever made with man has always included his household. God's promise is, quote, I will be a God to you and to your children after you, end quote. As we will see, the new covenant has not changed this principle. Now, that doesn't mean that the whole family was automatically saved, but God made his claim upon the whole family and gave his promises to the whole family which promises could be laid hold of by faith. Even individual covenants, like God's covenant with Phineas, followed this pattern. Examples Adam Adam's fall affected all who were in the covenant of creation. Quote, Through one man's offence, judgment came to all men. End quote. God's promise of grace after the fall also affected his children. Quote, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Genesis 3.15 Noah God promised Noah, quote, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. End quote. Genesis 9.9 Abraham To Abraham God said, quote, And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. End quote. Genesis 17, 7. Isaac, quote, to you and your descendants. End quote. Genesis 26, 4. Jacob, quote, to you and your descendants with you. End quote. Genesis 28, 4. And the same was true of the Mosaic and Davidic covenants, as well as the individual covenants like that made with Phineas. Now the question may be asked, quote, Where has the New Testament explicitly excluded children from the covenant? End quote. And the answer is that there is not one single verse in the New Testament that excludes them. Instead, we find explicit inclusion of children in the covenant promises. And, more to the point, an explicit linking of baptism with the Abrahamic covenant. For example, John the Baptist ties in his baptism with the Abrahamic covenant, Matthew 3.9, Luke 3.8. Peter ties his discussion of baptism with the covenant promise, Acts 2.38 and 39, and says that this, quote, promise is to you and to your children, end quote, Acts 3.39. Paul ties his message of baptism with the covenant to Abraham, in Acts 13, 24-26. Acts 16, 31 illustrates this Abrahamic pattern when it says, quote, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. End quote. And verse 33 says, quote, And immediately he and all his family were baptised. Galatians 3, 26-29 List baptised members who are heirs of the promise given to Abraham. That alone ought to clue us into the inclusion of children, since every promise ever given to Abraham was to Abraham and his, quote, 
seed, end quote. But the next verse explicitly says that a, quote, child, end quote, of such parents is an heir, 4 verse 1. Even before the, quote, guardians, end quote, bring him to faith, 4 verse 2, with 3 verses 23 and 24, Baptism is also tied to other covenants which included children, such as the Noahic Covenant, 1 Peter 3, 20-21, the Davidic Covenant, Acts 2, and the Mosaic Covenant, Hebrews 10, 22, in context of Hebrews 9-10. The New Testament is very clear. Children are members of the covenant and heirs of the, quote, covenants of promise, end quote, and baptism is the sign of being admitted to the covenant, Principle 3. Faith and repentance have the same importance now that they had with Abraham and the sign of circumcision. Faith and repentance are necessary before an adult can be baptised together with his children because he and his children are outside the covenant. The verses that prove this principle are the very verses that Baptists use to try to disprove infant baptism. The verses which are said to mandate, quote, believers' baptism, end quote, only, are Acts 2.38, 8.37, Mark 16.16. Acts 2.38 says, quote, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. End quote. Baptists say repentance is a clear prerequisite to baptism here. An infant cannot repent. Therefore, an infant cannot be baptised. Now that sounds plausible on the surface, But in a moment we will see that there is a glaring logical fallacy in applying the responsibilities of adults to infants. Before we show that fallacy, let me quote the other two Baptist proof texts. In Acts 8.37, in response to the eunuch's request to be baptised, Peter says, If you believe with all your heart, you may. Again, they say, belief is a prerequisite to baptism. And if you do not believe with all your heart, then you may not be baptised. One last text is Mark 16.16, which says, He who believes and is baptised will be saved, but he who does not believe will be damned. Again, belief comes before baptism here. He who believes and is baptised, an infant is incapable of belief, therefore an infant cannot be baptised. Now, My reply is that we believe exactly what those passages say. Before an adult can be baptised, and in every passage he is clearly talking to adults about adults, he must show evidence of belief and repentance. That's clear. That's something we insist on. But notice that the texts say nothing about infants. In fact, if the logic of the argument is pressed, you will see that it falls to the ground on those very texts themselves. Take the last passage, for instance. It says, quote, He who believes and is baptised will be saved. End quote. The logic is, belief must precede baptism, but since it cannot in an infant, an infant cannot be baptised. But if the logic holds for the final half of the sentence, it should hold for the last half. The second half says, quote, But he who does not believe will be damned. End quote. An infant cannot believe, therefore an infant is damned. Is that what it's saying? Well, if you read, quote, infant, end quote, into the passage in the first half, you have to read it into the second half. 
Obviously, that logic is incorrect since Scripture speaks of at least five infants being saved before or shortly after birth. Psalm 22, 9 and 10, 2 Samuel 12, 15 to 23, 1 Kings 14, 13, Jeremiah 1, 4, Luke 1, 41 and 44. The simple truth is that infants were not in view in the command to believe before being saved, or the verse would prove that infants can't be saved. And the same logic holds true for many subjects in Scripture. For instance, Paul makes an absolute command in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, quote, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat, end quote. Does this mean that since an infant cannot work, therefore an infant should not eat? No, there is the recognition that Paul is dealing with adults when he says that. You cannot reason from speeches to adults as to what can happen to infants. There has to be a specific prohibition of the sign of the covenant to children, and that is nowhere to be found in the New Testament. By the way, I might point out that the Old Testament clearly taught the same principle for circumcision. Before an adult could get circumcised together with his children, he had to repent and believe. Romans 4, 10-12, 2, 25-29, Exodus 12, 48, Joshua 5. Israel later apostatized and failed to maintain that distinction, but that distinction was God's plan. Joshua 5 is an excellent example of that principle being carried out. The Jews who died in the wilderness in unrepentant rebellion were not allowed to circumcise their children. Moses did not allow it because they were an unbelieving generation. Verses 5 to 6, notice the 4 at the beginning of verse 6. Compare Hebrews 3, 6 to chapter 4, 3. Thus they were treated as no better than Egyptians. Verse 9. It was not until after evidence of true faith in God, Joshua 1-4, contrasted with Hebrews 3, 16-19, that they were circumcised, but their households were then circumcised right along with them, and that's what we find in the New Testament. Adults are admonished to believe, and then baptism is applied to the whole household. See principles 6-8. Principle 4. To deny infant baptism is to deny the everlasting character of one of three everlasting signs given in the Old Testament. There are only three signs that are said to be everlasting signs, and each one, though modified by the New Testament, continues to be an abiding principle. Denying infant baptism denies the everlasting character of one of those signs. See next principle for more details. The three everlasting signs that will last till heaven and earth pass away are the Passover, the Sabbath and circumcision. The transition into the new covenant signs of Lord's Supper, Lord's Day and Baptism. Passover is said to be an everlasting sign of the covenant, Exodus 12, 14 and 17. Since almost all evangelicals believe that the Lord's Supper is the New Testament counterpart to Passover, Matthew 26, 17 to 30, etc., I won't belabor this one. However, I will remind Baptists that they should be consistent with their treatment of this everlasting sign and the everlasting sign of circumcision. If the New Testament alone determines who is and who is not to be admitted to a sacrament, then they have no right to admitting women. Nowhere does the New Testament speak about women partaking of the Lord's Supper. The only basis for admitting women to the Lord's Supper is a basis that could be equally well used for admitting infants to baptism. We admit women to the covenant meal because they were admitted in the Old Testament. 
we admit infants to the initiatory rite because they were admitted in the Old Testament. The Sabbath is said to be an everlasting or perpetual statute since it is a sign of the everlasting covenant. Exodus 31, 16 and 17, Ezekiel 20, 12 and 20, Isaiah 55, 3 with 56, 1 to 8, Exodus 31, 16 and 17. Therefore, though the new covenant makes a change in the day, it does not abolish what is perpetual or everlasting. Quote, there remains therefore a Sabbath rest, or literally a Sabbatism for the people of God. Hebrews 4, 9. The Greek of Matthew 28, 1, Mark 16, 1 to 2, Luke 24, 1 and John 21 shows that while there was a passing away of the Jewish form of the Sabbath, there was an ushering in of a first day Sabbath. Quote, first day of the week is literally, quote, first day of Sabbath. Observance of this first day Sabbath is now commanded in the New Testament. For example, Paul says, quote, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day, let each one of you lay something aside, end quote. Literal rendering of 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Thus, while the multitude of Jewish days, including the Saturday observance of the Sabbath, have been abolished, Colossians 2.16, there is one day which is, quote, the Lord's Day, end quote, even in New Testament times. Circumcision is the third sign and seal. Romans 4.11, it is called an everlasting sign. Genesis 17.7, 10, 11 and 13 of the everlasting covenant. Genesis 17, 7 and 13. And Genesis 17 specifically mentions that, quote, My covenant shall be in your flesh, no spiritualizing here, for an everlasting covenant, end quote, verse 13. Till heaven and earth pass away, the Abrahamic covenant must be in the flesh of believers and their children. Genesis 17, 10 to 14. Since the Mosaic covenant could in no way abrogate the Abrahamic covenant, Galatians 3, 17, we are spoken of as being under that Abrahamic covenant now. Galatians 3, 4, 22-31, Romans 4. And that covenant is, quote, the covenant of circumcision, end quote, Acts 7, 8. The next principle will detail how baptism can be treated by the New Testament as, quote, Christian circumcision, end quote. But pause here to reflect upon the way the other two, quote, everlasting signs, end quote, were carried over into the New Testament, in each case, the central purpose of the sign continued in the New Testament, even though there were some outward changes. It is not enough to say that spiritual circumcision fulfills the requirement of everlasting in Genesis 17.13. Old Testament saints were required to have both the sign and the reality of spiritual circumcision that the sign pointed towards. One must not confuse the sign with what is signified there must be some way in which God's covenant sign shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant, end quote, Genesis 17.13. And if that is granted, then it takes New Testament authority to specify every change that is made. Principle number five. Baptism is the New Testament counterpart to circumcision, and the baptized Gentile is, quote, counted as if, end quote, circumcised Romans 2:26 In this section we will be demonstrating that baptism is the New Testament counterpart to circumcision In the last paragraph we have already seen that believers are members of 
quote, the covenant of circumcision, end quote, that is, the Abrahamic covenant. Thus, it is natural for Scripture to describe us as, quote, the circumcision, end quote, Philippians 3.3, and to describe those outside the covenant as being both uncircumcised in spirit as well as uncircumcised in flesh. Quote, you being dead in your sins and the circumcision of your flesh, end quote, Colossians 2.13. The question often arises, quote, how can we be called the circumcision if there is not a literal circumcision of the flesh, end quote? The simple answer is, quote, the same way Old Testament women could be called, quote, the circumcision, end quote. Though some nations practice female circumcision, God, no doubt out of mercy, only had the male circumcised. But the female was counted as if she were circumcised because she took part in the ceremonial baptism that accompanied circumcision. Leviticus 12, 15, Numbers 31, 18 and 23, with Deuteronomy 21, 10 to 14. This, quote, purification of separation, end quote, was also applied to proselytes who'd died to their Gentile background and were then born into Judaism. The man and his male children would be circumcised and baptised, but the wife and her female children only received baptism. Yet all were from that moment on treated as Jews, Israelites, the circumcision and clean. That is why it would have been no surprise to Jews to see Paul saying in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, that circumcision and spiritual baptism are exactly the same thing, or of saying that baptism is Christian circumcision, Colossians 2, 11 and 12. The early Greek fathers Justin Martyr, Gregory Nassiansen, Cyril, and others call circumcision a baptism, and baptism, quote, the great circumcision, end quote, or, quote, circumcised by washing, end quote, They use the terms interchangeably, just like the Jews. Therefore, if the Jews treated female children as if they were circumcised when they received the baptism of Leviticus 12, 15, etc., we can biblically be treated as the circumcision when we receive Christian baptism. Interestingly, the as-if language is used in both directions. When John the Baptist later said that Israel had been excommunicated, and they were no longer children of Abraham, but were Gentiles in need of this proselyte baptism. Compare, for example, Matthew 3, 5-12. He greatly offended the Pharisees. He was treating them as if they were uncircumcised. Compare Romans 2, 25 with Matthew 3, 8-10. The same as-if language that was applied to women for circumcision and to unbelieving Jews for uncircumcision is applies to baptised believers. Romans 2.26 says that we are counted as if we are circumcised and Romans 4.12 says that Abraham's fatherhood extends not only to faith, Romans 4.16, but he is also said to be, quote, the father of circumcision, end quote, to non-Jews, Romans 4.12. Thus, Philippians 3.2 and 3 can say that though Jews are the concision translated as mutilation by many translations, quote, we baptised believers are the circumcision, end quote. Though believing Gentiles were, quote, once, that is, once but no longer, Gentiles in the flesh, end quote, Ephesians 2.11, and that, quote, at that time you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, 
and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, end quote, Ephesians 2.12. That is, no longer the case, because we have been brought near, Ephesians 2.13, and have been made, quote, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, end quote, Ephesians 2.19. The inference of Colossians 2.13, Ephesians 2.11, and the other passages, is that we are no longer Gentiles in the flesh. We are Israel, Galatians 6.16, Romans 9.6-8, Jews, Romans 2.28 and 29, a holy nation, 1 Peter 2.9, Titus 2.14, children of Abraham, Galatians 3.7 and 29, and the circumcision, Philippians 3.3. It is no wonder that Paul ends his arguments against circumcision of the penis in Galatians with his discussion of the true significance of baptism, Galatians 3.27-29, and ties spiritual baptism in with the significance of the promise to Abraham, verse 29. The promise that circumcision signed and sealed is the same promise that baptism signs and seals. It is the gift of the Spirit, Galatians 3.14. Thus, baptism is, quote, Christian circumcision, end quote. In fact, so convincing is the connection between circumcision and baptism in the Greek of Colossians 2.11 and 12 that many Baptists now agree that baptism is the New Testament counterpart to circumcision, However, they believe that the New Testament has authorised a change in the application of this outward sign. Their proof texts are Mark 16.16 and Acts 2.38 and Acts 8.37. They argue that this new emphasis on faith has changed the covenant from an outward administration to an inward one. For a refutation of their use of these verses, see principle number three. The simple fact is, we cannot be in the, quote, Covenant of circumcision, end quote, Acts 7 8, without circumcision being carried over in some way into the New Testament. But if it has come over into the New Testament, it must be governed by the same laws governing circumcision, unless there are clear changes that have been made. For further evidence of the identity between baptism and circumcision, I offer the following chart. Baptism has the same meaning as circumcision. Meaning, justification by faith, circumcision, Romans 4.11, Colossians 2.11 and 12, Romans 2.25-29, Philippians 3.3, baptism, Acts 8.37, 2.38. Meaning, cleansing from defilement, circumcision, Jeremiah 4.4, Leviticus 26.14, baptism, 1 Peter 3.21, Acts 22.16, 1 Corinthians 7.14 Meaning, for those who are holy or set apart by a parent's relationship to God, Ezra 9.2, Isaiah 16, Isaiah 6.13, Malachi 2.15 Baptism, 1 Corinthians 7.14 Meaning, death to world, Egypt, and entrance into new life. Circumcision Joshua 5 9 with verses 2 to 9, baptism, Romans 6 3 and 4, meaning, union with God, Deuteronomy 36, Jeremiah 4 4, circumcision, Deuteronomy 36, Jeremiah 4 4, Galatians 3 16 and 29, 
Genesis 17, 7 and 8, Colossians 2.11, Baptism, Galatians 3.27, Romans 6, 1-8. Meaning, necessity of an inner experience, namely spiritual circumcision and spiritual baptism. Circumcision, Romans 2.28 and 29, Jeremiah 4.4. 4. Baptism, 1 Peter 3.21. Meaning, placed on whole households. Circumcision, Genesis 17, 10, 23-27. Baptism, Acts 16, 15 and 13, 1 Corinthians 1.16. It is interesting to note that the early church also based their practice of infant baptism upon the connection between circumcision and baptism. I have already given evidence of Greek-speaking church fathers calling baptism, quote, the great circumcision, end quote, The following quotes are a few of the multitude of witnesses to the universal practice of infant baptism in the early church. 1. Irenaeus, born before the Apostle John died and taught by Polycarp, John's disciple, speaks of baptism being applied to, quote, infants and little ones and children and youths and older persons in about 180 AD. 2. Origen, born 185, said, quote, the Church has a tradition from the Apostles to give baptism even to infants. 3. Hippolytus, in 215 AD, clearly spoke of the baptism of infants, saying, quote, And first baptize the little ones, and if they can speak for themselves, they shall do so. If not, their parents or other relatives shall speak for them. Then baptize the men, and last of all the women. Phidus wrote a circular in 250 AD, to all churches in his presbytery, saying that baptism should be delayed until the eighth after a child was born, on the analogy of circumcision. 5. Even Baptists have to admit that the first church controversy that ever arose over baptism arose in 253 AD. And interestingly, the raging controversy was, on what day should an infant be baptised? Some felt that Fidus was correct, and that the analogy between circumcision and baptism demanded the literal eighth day after birth. Others argued that it should be earlier, since Sunday is the eighth day in biblical symbolism. The latter view prevailed. But we have no evidence that even one elder in that ecumenical council raised an objection to the propriety of infant baptism. They all assumed its apostolic authority. 6. Augustine, born AD 354, wrote a great deal about infant baptism and said that infant baptism was practised universally and that it was based on apostolic authority and not the authority of councils. In other words, they got it from the scriptures. Many other examples could be given from Aristides, who began writing in 117 AD, to Justin Martyr, born AD 100, to Cyprian, who in 251 AD asked the General Assembly if baptism should be administered before the eighth day, to Clement of Alexandria, who, in 195 AD, wrote a tract that included a phrase of infant baptism to a whole host of others in the 3rd and 4th centuries. History certainly speaks in favour of infant baptism, though our authority should only rest in the scriptures, as many of those same church fathers remind us. They insisted on apostolic authority. Principle number five. Baptism is the New Testament counterpart to circumcision.
and the baptized Gentile is, quote, counted as if, end quote, circumcised, Romans 2.26. In this section, we will be demonstrating that baptism is the New Testament counterpart to circumcision. In the last paragraph, we have already seen that believers are members of, quote, the covenant of circumcision, end quote, that is, the Abrahamic covenant. Thus, it is natural for Scripture to describe us as, quote, the circumcision, end quote, Philippians 3.3, and to describe those outside the covenant as being both uncircumcised in spirit as well as uncircumcised in flesh. Quote, you being dead in your sins and the circumcision of your flesh, end quote, Colossians 2.13. The question often arises, quote, how can we be called the circumcision if there is not a literal circumcision of the flesh, end quote, the simple answer is, quote, the same way Old Testament women could be called, quote, the circumcision, end quote. Though some nations practiced female circumcision, God, no doubt out of mercy, only had the male circumcised. But the female was counted as if she were circumcised because she took part in the ceremonial baptism that accompanied circumcision, Leviticus 12, 15, Numbers 31, 18 and 23, with Deuteronomy 21. 10 to 14. This, quote, purification of separation, end quote, was also applied to proselytes who'd died to their Gentile background and were then born into Judaism. The man and his male children would be circumcised and baptized, but the wife and her female children only received baptism. Yet all were from that moment on treated as Jews, Israelites, the circumcision and clean that is why it would have been no surprise to Jews to see Paul saying in Colossians 2, 11 and 12 that circumcision and spiritual baptism are exactly the same thing or of saying that baptism is Christian circumcision, Colossians 2, 11 and 12. The early Greek fathers Justin Martyr, Gregory Nassiansen, Cyril and others called circumcision a baptism and baptism, quote, the great circumcision, end quote, or, quote, circumcised by washing, end quote. They use the terms interchangeably, just like the Jews. Therefore, if the Jews treated female children as if they were circumcised when they received the baptism of Leviticus 12, 15, etc., we can biblically be treated as the circumcision when we receive Christian baptism. Interestingly, the as-if language is used in both directions, when John the Baptist later said that Israel had been excommunicated and they were no longer children of Abraham but were Gentiles in need of this proselyte baptism, compare, for example, Matthew 3, 5-12, he greatly offended the Pharisees. He was treating them as if they were uncircumcised, compare Romans 2.25 with Matthew 3, 8-10. The same as if language that was applied to women for circumcision and to unbelieving Jews for uncircumcision, it applies to baptized believers. Romans 2.26 says that we are counted as if we are circumcised. And Romans 4.12 says that Abraham's fatherhood extends not only to faith, Romans 4.16, but he is also said to be, quote, the father of circumcision, end quote, to non-Jews, Romans 4.12. Thus, Philippians 3, 2 and 3, can say that though Jews are the concision, 
translated as mutilation by many translations, quote, we baptized believers are the circumcision, end quote. Though believing Gentiles were, quote, once, that is, once but no longer, Gentiles in the flesh, end quote, Ephesians 2.11, and that, quote, at that time you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, end quote, Ephesians 2.12. That is, no longer the case, because we have been brought near, Ephesians 2.13, and have been made, quote, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, end quote, Ephesians 2.19. The inference of Colossians 2.13, Ephesians 2.11, and the other passages, is that we are no longer Gentiles in the flesh. We are Israel, Galatians 6.16, Romans 9.6-8, Jews, Romans 2.28 and 29, a holy nation, 1 Peter 2.9, Titus 2.14, Children of Abraham, Galatians 3.7 and 29, and the Circumcision, Philippians 3.3. It is no wonder that Paul ends his arguments against circumcision of the penis in Galatians with his discussion of the true significance of baptism, Galatians 3.27-29, and ties spiritual baptism in with the significance of the promise to Abraham, verse 29. The promise that circumcision signed and sealed is the same promise that baptism signs and seals. It is the gift of the Spirit, Galatians 3.14. Thus, baptism is, quote, Christian circumcision, end quote. In fact, so convincing is the connection between circumcision and baptism in the Greek of Colossians 2.11 and 12 that many Baptists now agree that baptism is the New Testament counterpart to circumcision. However, they believe that the New Testament has authorised a change in the application of this outward sign. Their proof texts are Mark 16.16 16, and Acts 2.38 and Acts 8.37. They argue that this new emphasis on faith has changed the covenant from an outward administration to an inward one. For a refutation of their use of these verses, see principle number three. The simple fact is, we cannot be in the, quote, covenant of circumcision, end quote, Acts 7-8, without circumcision being carried over in some way into the New Testament. But if it has come over into the New Testament, it must be governed by the same laws governing circumcision, unless there are clear changes that have been made. For further evidence of the identity between baptism and circumcision, I offer the following chart. Baptism has the same meaning as circumcision. Meaning, justification by faith, circumcision, Romans 4.11, Colossians 2.11 and 12, Romans 2.25-29, Philippians 3.3, baptism, Acts 8.37, 2.38. Meaning, cleansing from defilement, circumcision, Jeremiah 4.4, Leviticus 26.14, baptism, 1 Peter 3.21, Acts 22.16, 1 Corinthians 7.14 Meaning, for those who are holy or set apart by a parent's relationship to God, Ezra 9.2, Isaiah 16, Isaiah 6.13, Malachi 2.15 Baptism, 1 Corinthians 7.14 Meaning, death to world, Egypt, and entrance into new life. Circumcision, 
Joshua 5.9 with verses 2-9, to Baptism, Romans 6.3 and 4, Meaning, Union with God, Deuteronomy 36, Jeremiah 4.4, 4. Circumcision, Deuteronomy 36, Jeremiah 4.4, 4. Galatians 3.16 and 29, Genesis 17.7 and 8, Colossians 2.11, Baptism, Galatians 3.27, Romans 6.1-8. Meaning, necessity of an inner experience, namely spiritual circumcision and spiritual baptism. Circumcision, Romans 2.28 and 29, Jeremiah 4.4. Baptism, 1 Peter 3.21. Meaning, placed on whole households. Circumcision, Genesis 17. 10, 23-27 Baptism Acts 16, 15 and 13 1 Corinthians 1, 16 It is interesting to note that the early church also based their practice of infant baptism upon the connection between circumcision and baptism. I have already given evidence of Greek-speaking church fathers calling baptism, quote, the great circumcision, end quote. The following quotes are a few of the multitude of witnesses to the Universal practice of infant baptism in the early church. 1. Irenaeus, born before the Apostle John died and taught by Polycarp, John's disciple, speaks of baptism being applied to quote, infants and little ones and children and youths and older persons in about 180 AD. 2. Origen, born 185, said quote, The church has a tradition from the apostles to give baptism even to infants. 3. Hippolytus, in 215 AD, clearly spoke of the baptism of infants, saying, quote, And first baptize the little ones, and if they can speak for themselves, they shall do so. If not, their parents or other relatives shall speak for them. Then baptize the men, and last of all the women. End quote. Phidus wrote a circular in 250 AD to all churches in his presbytery, saying that baptism should be delayed until the year after a child was born, on the analogy of circumcision. 5. Even Baptists have to admit that the first church controversy that ever arose over baptism arose in 253 AD. And interestingly, the raging controversy was, on what day should an infant be baptised? Some felt that Fidus was correct and that the analogy between circumcision and baptism demanded the literal eighth day after birth. Others argued that it should be earlier, since Sunday is the eighth day in biblical symbolism the latter view prevailed. But we have no evidence that even one elder in that ecumenical council raised an objection to the propriety of infant baptism. They all assumed its apostolic authority. 6. Augustine, born AD 354, wrote a great deal about infant baptism and said that infant baptism was practiced universally and that it was based on apostolic authority and not the authority of councils. In other words, they got it from the scriptures. Many other examples could be given from Aristides, who began writing in 117 AD, to Justin Martyr, born AD 100, to Cyprian, who in 251 AD asked the General Assembly if baptism should be administered before the eighth day, to Clement of Alexandria, who in 195 AD wrote a tract that included a phrase of infant baptism, to a whole host of others in the 3rd and 4th centuries, History 
certainly speaks in favour of infant baptism, though our authority should only rest in the Scriptures, as many of those same church fathers remind us. They insisted on apostolic authority. Principle 7. For those who insist on proof texts from the New Testament, we accommodate. There are New Testament passages which include children in the rite of baptism. Unlike the arguments for including women in the Lord's Supper, which must rely exclusively on principle 1 above, there is a great deal of New Testament evidence that children were baptised. If you skipped over the first six principles, I would encourage you to return to them after you have read principle number 7. Without the first six principles, you will only have a fraction of the solid proofs for infant baptism. This principle merely demonstrates that there are proof texts that specifically say that children were baptised. Principle 7 is the quote, proof text end quote, approach, whereas the first six principles follow the deductive approach that is used to discover the doctrine of the Trinity and several other doctrines. 1. 1 Corinthians 7.14 clearly teaches infant baptism. A synonym for unbaptized is used when it says, quote, Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. End quote. Many Baptists would object that the word holy cannot imply that infants are baptized, since the unbelieving spouse is also said to be holy or set apart to the Lord. With that statement, I heartily agree. But what many fail to realize is that, though both unbelieving spouse and children are said to be made holy or, quote, sanctified, end quote, only infants are said to be holy and cleansed, that is, baptized. We will first look at the meaning of holy and then at the meaning of the word cleansed. The verse says, quote, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. End quote. 1 Corinthians 7.14 The word translated as sanctified or holy cannot mean saved or made subjectively holy. That would make nonsense of the word unbeliever, and take away the force of verse 16, which is to give hope of the future salvation of the unbelieving spouse. That is the same hope we have for our children. We do not believe in baptismal regeneration, or even presupposed regeneration. That our children are holy does not mean that they are saved, nor can it mean that the marriage relationship is made legitimate by the believing spouse, and that this legitimizing of the marriage relationship makes the children legitimate. This interpretation is laden with several problems. First, the word holy is never used in this way elsewhere in Scripture. It always has at least some logical connection with its basic meaning of, quote, to be set apart to God, end quote. Second, this would be to imply that non-Christian marriages are illegitimate and that children of non-Christian marriages are bastards. Further, it would imply that the separation of the mixed marriage couple of verse 15 would make the children retroactively bastards because of the absence of the believing partner. This is obviously a grasping at straws since scripture indicates that even the marriages of unbelieving non-Jews can be both lawful and unlawful, Mark six seventeen and 18, and not even the strictest interpretations on divorce and remarriage have, have said that divorce would retroactively illegitimize the child. Because of this, 
Some Baptists have avoided this interpretation and have merely said that, whatever holy means, it can't mean baptize, since that would imply the baptism of the unbelieving spouse as well. Whatever interpretation we give to holy or sanctified, it must mean the same thing for both unbelieving spouse and child. On a pedo-baptist interpretation, the normal sense of holy as, quote, to be set apart to God, end quote, is used. Jeffrey Blomley summarizes the pedo-baptist position well when he says that, quote, in virtue of the other's faith, he or she is separated to God and comes into this sphere of evangelical action and promise with a hope of future conversion. But the same is true of the children, how much more so one might suppose when both the parents are confessing Christians, end quote. In other words, contact with the believer has set the others apart in God's plan for the special working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. This fits the context of the passage, which gives us one reason why the believer should not leave his or her unbelieving spouse as, quote, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? End quote. Verse 16. The hope that you, as believing spouse, will save your unbelieving spouse is parallel to you, as believing spouse, sanctifying your unbelieving spouse. It is the believing spouse who is key in their future salvation. Therefore, what Paul is saying to us in the second part of the verse is that if it were not for this covenantal sanctifying, setting apart influence of the believing spouse, the children would have to remain in an, quote, unclean, end quote, unbaptized state. It is the meaning of that word, unclean, that will now be discussed, beginning with the Old Testament and moving to the New Testament baptisms. The same Greek word for unclean and its positive form clean is used as a noun, quote, a purification or, quote, a cleansing, end quote, a verb, quote, to make clean or, quote, to purify, end quote, and an adjective, pure or clean. The same is true of the words holiness, noun, sanctified, verb, and holy, adjective. For simplification when quoting a verse, I will insert the word for holy or clean, we will begin by quoting 1 Corinthians 7.14 again. Quote, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified, verb, by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified, verb, by the husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, negative, adjective, but now they are holy, adjective. There are two ways the word for unclean is used in the Bible. There is outward covenantal cleansing such as, quote, the purifying of the flesh, end quote, by ritual baptisms, Hebrews 9.13, and there is inward cleansing spoken of as the, quote, purifying of their hearts, end quote, by the Holy Spirit, Acts 15.9. Which kind of uncleanness and cleanness is being talked about in 1 Corinthians 7.14? If Paul were referring to the purifying of the heart, then it would be teaching that children of one believer are automatically saved, and children of unbelievers are not saved, Though some people teach this, I believe it is a contradiction of the context. See above a discussion on holy and a contradiction of other scriptures which insist that we are, quote, born not of natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God, end quote. John 1, 13, New International Version. We Presbyterians simply do not believe in presupposed regeneration or in baptismal regeneration. But if Paul is not implying that these children have already been regenerated, 
then the only other alternative is outward covenantal purification, or what Hebrews speaks of as the, quote, purifying of the flesh, end quote. And if it is an outward cleansing, it must refer to baptism, since baptism is the only New Testament ritual that is said to purify the flesh. The following are some examples that use this word in 1 Corinthians 7.14 as a synonym for baptism. In John 3.25, see context of verses 22-26, to both John's baptism and Christ's baptism was spoken of as a purification. Thus, unclean is a synonym for unbaptized, and clean is a synonym for baptized. Christian baptism is spoken of as having, quote, our bodies washed with pure water, Hebrews 10.22, see Numbers 19, 9, 13, 20, 21, 31, 23, and 24, Ezekiel 36.25, Hebrews 9.13, for the usage of pure water, or water of purification, or purifying water. Ephesians 5.26 says, quote, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify, verb, and cleanse, verb, it with the washing of water by the word, end quote. This verse teaches clearly that being sanctified, set apart for the Holy Spirit's special working, is not enough for membership in the church, and thus the unbelieving spouse could not be a member, even though there is great hope of his or her being saved in the future. Nor is being cleansed with the washing of water sufficient, and thus children of unbelievers have no right to church membership, even if someone was foolish enough to baptise them. To be a member of the church, one must be sanctified and cleansed. 1 Corinthians 7.14, Ephesians 5.26 And Christ is the one who both sets people apart and who declares them cleansed by water. Example, the Gentiles of Acts 10.28 were called unclean, negative adjective, because they were outside the covenant. But God showed Peter through the vision of the unclean animals that God had extended the covenant to Gentiles. The Spirit set them apart to God when they were baptised with the Holy Spirit in a very dramatic way, 10.44.11.16. Peter accordingly baptised them into the church with water upon their profession of faith, 10.47 and 48. When the apostles complained about Peter's eating with these unclean Gentiles in Acts 11, Peter tells them the story, emphasising God's words, quote, What God has cleansed, verb, you must not call common. End quote. 11.9. Then Peter explained the incident at Cornelius' house and ended by saying, quote, And as he began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, quote, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. End quote. End quote. Acts 11.15-16. In this passage, Peter ties the concept of uncleanness to those outside the church, and cleansing is declared to be by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, internal cleansing, and baptism of water, external cleansing. For other examples where the word is used in 1 Corinthians 7.14 refers to outward ritual cleansing in the New Testament. See Matthew 8, 2 and 3, 10, 8, 11, 15, 23, 25 and 26, Mark 1, 40, 41, 42 and 44, 719, Luke 2, 22, 4, 27, 5, 12 and 13 and 14, 7, 22, 11, 39, 17, verse 14 and 17, John 2, 6, 13, 10 and 11, Romans 14, 10, 
Romans 14.20, Titus 1.15, Hebrews 9.22 and 23. In the New Testament context, 1 Corinthians 7.14 can mean nothing more nor less than, quote, Otherwise your children would be unbaptized, but now they are holy, end quote. In the Old Testament, the same language could have referred to either ritual baptisms or to circumcision. The word unclean is the word that is used to describe the uncircumcised Gentiles, Isaiah 52.1, 35.8, Acts 10.28. But it is most frequently used in connection with the Old Testament baptisms. Whereas there is only one cleansing rite in the New Testament, there were many baptisms in the Old Testament, Hebrews 6.2. Hebrews 9 describes several of these sprinkling ceremonies and calls them washings, verse 10, or literally baptisms, each one of which sanctifies verb for the purifying, noun, of the flesh, end quote, verse 13. Note the same usage of language as in 1 Corinthians 7.14. As one example of those Old Testament cleansing baptisms, Leviticus 13 uses the same word as 1 Corinthians 7.14 to describe the, quote, unclean, end quote, negative adjective state of a man with leprosy. This ceremonial uncleanness makes it impossible for him to fellowship with God's people in corporate worship. He is cast out, Leviticus 13.46. If God heals him of his leprosy, he can be readmitted. And since recircumcision is impossible, baptism was used as a means of readmitting him into the covenant community. In chapter 14, he says that the sprinkling of the, quote, waters of purification, end quote, or, quote, unquote, pure water, or purifying water, adjective, makes him clean, adjective. Quote, and he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed, Verb from the leprosy, and shall pronounce him clean. Adjective, end quote, Leviticus fourteen seven. Of course, proselyte baptism, of which John thirty two twenty two to twenty four is one example, falls into the category of water being used to declare quote, unclean end quote, pagans to now be clean, Jews and full members of the covenant. See discussion of this under principle number five. The examples from the Old Testament are too numerous to list, being unclean in an outward covenantal sense is well established. Therefore, whether we are looking at 1 Corinthians 7.14 through the eyes of the Old Testament or through the eyes of the New Testament, the phrase, quote, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy, unquote, means nothing more and nothing less than, quote, otherwise your children would be unbaptized, but now they are holy, end quote. Using the, quote, proof text, end quote, method, we have found at least one verse that clearly indicates infant baptism. See Appendix B for the connection of this verse to the Old Testament baptism of Nida. Paul was talking about something every Jew would have been familiar with. 2. Galatians 3.26-4.1 lists those who are heirs of the Abrahamic covenant, and this list of covenant members explicitly includes as an heir a child Furthermore, the heirs of Christ are explicitly subsumed under the heading of quote, as many of you as were baptized into Christ, end quote, 329. Both Baptists and Presbyterians agree that those listed in 328 and 29 are in the Abrahamic covenant and thus to be baptized. But, 
On what basis is the child of the very next verse, 4-1, excluded when he is explicitly said to be an heir and even compared with the status of the slave who was earlier included in 328? If those in verses 26 to 29 are baptized members, then so is the child in 4.1. The relationship in baptism between adult believers, 3.26 to 29, and their young children, 4.1, is precisely the relationship that existed long before baptism replaced circumcision. Abraham, as a pagan, believed before he was circumcised, as in 3.26 and 27. But, from that point on, his children were in the covenant, as in 4.1. The major change in emphasis in the New Covenant is that it includes far more, not far less. Whereas only a few Gentiles were included in the covenant in the Old Testament, the Abrahamic promise anticipated a time when, quote, In your seed, Christ, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, end quote, Acts 3.25, with Genesis 12.3, Also see Genesis 18.18, 18, 22.18, 26.4 Galatians 4.1 is simply reaffirming the promise that families continue to be included in the Abrahamic covenant. Thus, the list of those, quote, baptised into Christ, end quote, 3.26, includes not only Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, males and females, but also the children of those believers. Let's go through the list of baptised people one by one and show how the very list reinforces this conclusion. In verse 28, Jews who belong to Christ are said to be part of the Abrahamic covenant and, quote, heirs according to the promise, end quote. How was this promise made? The form of the promise given to Abraham was, quote, to you and to your descendants, end quote. What is the most natural reading that a believing Jew would make of this text? Certainly not that children were excluded. Though the New Testament records great controversy over the change in the sign from circumcision to baptism, there is not the slightest hint of a controversy over a supposed exclusion of children. Paul also includes Gentiles as heirs because the Abrahamic promise had not only been made to embrace nations, literally Gentiles, see Genesis 18.18, 22.18, but had explicitly said, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, compare Genesis 12.3, and Acts 3.25. Notice that the covenantal concept of, quote, families, end quote, being included, was not restricted to the nation of Israel, but was extended to the Gentiles. Thus, the Gentile believers could expect that children would continue to be in the covenant. Paul goes on to include slaves and free, since they had been included under Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant elevated the status of slaves to be spiritual equals to free, The Abrahamic Covenant made revolutionary changes to the status of slaves in every nation up through Rome. And thus, Paul addresses the slave Onesimus as, quote, a beloved brother, end quote, Philemon 16, and the slaves in the Church of Ephesus as, quote, servants of Christ, end quote, 6-6, who equally serve Christ, quote, whether slave or free, end quote, 6-8, It was the Abrahamic covenant that gave these slaves an equal footing before God. He includes males and females, since a female infant was, in the Old Testament period, 
considered by baptism to be a quote, daughter of Abraham, end quote, Luke 13, 16. Women today are not blessed in an entirely different way than Sarah was, but are, quote, like Sarah, whose daughters you are, end quote, 1 Peter 3, 6. It was not just the New Covenant, but the Abrahamic Covenant itself that elevated the status of women to being joint heirs with their husbands. Sarah exercised faith just as Abraham did, quote, By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised, end quote. Hebrews 11.11, New King James Version. Thus, Galatians 3.28 is not a radical overturning of the Abrahamic covenant, as most interpretations believe, but showing the radical nature of the Abrahamic covenant which we are in, There is no controversy about whether adults must profess faith in Christ to be considered heirs of the covenant. What is at issue is whether the children of a believing Jew, Gentile, slave, free man, male or female, belong to the covenant and are heirs of its provisions. Baptists say no. We say yes. For one settles the issue. Quote, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, end quote, The word for child is napion and refers to a small child. It is clear that the children of believers continue to be in the Abrahamic covenant and are heirs to the promise. They are under guardians, 4.2, to bring them to faith, 3.24. As Christ made so clear in Luke 18, 15 and 16, we are called to bring children to Christ because they are in the kingdom in terms of privilege. 3. Other proof texts that can be brought forward in defence of infant baptism are the many household baptisms that are recorded for us, and one text specifically mentions children. Household baptisms have been written off by Baptists as being households where all the members were of age. In an age of no birth control and of large families, it is almost unthinkable that so many household baptisms could all have happened to occur in families where there were no young children. In the case of the Philippian jailer, it is almost unthinkable since a jailer would have been a man still in his virile years. In fact, the only recorded baptisms that we can be absolutely certain did not include a household were the baptism of Jesus, unmarried. The Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 8.36, he couldn't have children, of Paul, Acts 9.18.22.16. Paul didn't have children, and of the, quote, twelve men, end quote, who came without wives or children, Acts 19, 3, 3 to 5, 7, perhaps unmarried. That means that the only baptisms which we know were non-household baptisms were non-household baptisms because there were no households to baptise. That being the case, it is helpful to statistically evaluate the number and type of New Testament baptisms to demonstrate that household baptisms were the norm not the exception. I have divided the twelve instances of baptisms in Acts and the Epistles into four categories. 1. Those where it is certain that no children or wives were baptised. 2. Those where it is certain, based on the text itself. 3. Those where there are strong hints that a household baptism took place. and 4. Household baptisms explicitly mentioned. There is really only one passage that leaves uncertainty about whether household baptisms occurred. 
This does not mean that households were not baptised, but that the text does not specify a household. The text is Acts 8, 12 and records that among the Samaritans, both men and women were baptised. It could be interpreted to mean that one, that adult men and women were the only ones baptised, in which case it would be a non-household baptism, or two, as the Greek can be construed, that it simply meant that it could mean simply, quote, both males and females were baptised, end quote. Or lastly, it could simply be specifying the heads of household and the women without ruling out children. The last interpretation seems to be the only way to account for the discrepancy between Acts 18, 8, where Paul baptised the whole household of Crispus, and 1 Corinthians 1.14 following, where Paul says that the only baptisms he did in Corinth were those of, quote, Crispus and Gaius, end quote, and the household of Stephanus. See discussion of next paragraph. So, the language of 8.12 is not unusual, even if household baptisms occurred on that occasion. But, we have left it in the category of, quote, uncertain, end quote, simply based on contextual evidence. The third category is that which contained hints that households were baptised. The first text is 1 Corinthians 1.14, which says, quote, I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius, end quote. At first reading, since wives are not mentioned, it may appear that this is a case of bachelors who were baptised. While it is possible they were unmarried and belonged in the non-household category, there are strong hints that this was not the case. It is clear that there was a prominent Crispus that was baptised with his whole household in Acts 18.8. It could be objected that Timothy and not Paul possibly baptised this Crispus since both were present. However, since that Crispus was so prominent in Corinth, it would be highly unlikely that he would have spoken of a different Crispus without saying, quote, the son of X, end quote, or in some other way making clear which Crispus he was referring to. Furthermore, there is no New Testament evidence for another Crispus in Corinth. Therefore, since it is almost certain that it was the same Crispus, and since it is certain that his wife believed and was baptised at the same time, Acts 18.8, it follows that Paul only mentions the head of the household with the understanding that both Crispus and Gaius represented their households. The also in 1 Corinthians 1.16 seems to confirm this. Quote, Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. End quote. Quote, Also the household, end quote, implies that the other two were households. This would place Crispus and Gaius clearly in the category of household baptisms. However, since there is an outside possibility that there was another Crispus at Corinth, and since it is possible to interpret the also without including the household, I wouldn't want to press that point. So, I am including both Crispus and Gaius only in a category which hints strongly at household baptisms. Acts 2 does not specifically say that women or infants were baptised, but there are several strong hints which almost necessitate that interpretation. The text simply says, quote, 3,000 souls, end quote, were baptised, Acts 2.41. However, in Peter's admonition to the crowd, he said, quote, Repent, active tense, and let every one of you be baptised, quote, Let be baptised is a passive tense. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, and as many as the Lord will call, end quote, Acts 2.38 and 39. 
Peter is making a logical deduction. And if the deduction is to follow the rules of logic, there must be the same terms in the conclusion. Repent and let every one of you be baptised, as in the premise, the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The, quote, every one of you, end quote, surely includes the children. This conclusion is further strengthened when it is realised that the promise Peter was alluding to was the promise of the Spirit, Acts 2.33, which was first promised through the Abrahamic covenant, compared Galatians 3.14, and was later promised again through David, Acts 2.29-34, and through Joel, Acts 2.16-21. In each case, the promise included the children. As we saw under principle number two, this promise that Peter is alluding to necessarily must include the whole family. The connection between the call to repent and the baptism of, quote, every one of you, end quote, is the same principle given in Acts 16, 30, 31 to 33, quote. So they said, quote, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And immediately he and all his family were baptized, end quote. This is simply an example of the representational principle described under principle number six, paragraph 10. Notice too that prior to Peter's promise to the children of those who repent, he had quoted Joel saying, quote, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my manservants and on my maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days. End quote. Acts 2, 17 and 18. Every age category was included. The Abrahamic promise was a far-reaching promise. Logically, contextually and theologically, it seems difficult to avoid the conclusion that children were baptised on that day. This leaves five Christian baptisms that are clearly household. 1. The baptism of Cornelius' family in Acts 10, 47 and 48 and in 11, 14, 2. 2. The baptism of Lydia's family in Acts 16, 15. 3. The baptism of the Philippians' dealer family in Acts 16, 32 and 33. 4. The baptism of Crispus's family in Acts 18, 8. And 5. The baptism of Stephanus's family in 1 Corinthians 1, 16. The following chart shows that this was the norm. Clearly household. Cornelius. Acts 10, 47 and 48. 11, 14. Lydia. Acts 16.15 Stephanus 1 Corinthians 1.16 Crispus Acts 18.18 Jailer Acts 16.32 and 33 Favours Household The 3000 Acts 2.41 Crispus 1 Corinthians 1.14 Gaius 1 Corinthians 1.14 Uncertain Samaritans Acts 8.12 Clearly non-household Eunuch, Acts 8, 27-38 Paul, Acts 9, 1-18 Twelve Disciples of John, Acts 19, 5-7 No Wives You can immediately see that there is not a single clear case of a man failing to be baptised along with his family. The only non-household baptisms are families where there is no household that could be baptised. Thus, of the eight baptisms left, 9. If the Crispus of 1 Corinthians 1.14 is a different Crispus than in Acts 18.8, 1 is uncertain. 
three strongly favour household baptism and five are household baptisms without any controversy. If, as I have shown, the baptisms in column two are indeed household baptisms, we have a situation where seven out of eleven, eight out of twelve if the Christmases are different, are household baptisms. But since column four should be left off of the calculation, seven out of eight. Since the eighth one is in the uncertain category, it becomes clear that there is no evidence against our position that all families were baptised when the head of the family came to Christ. 1 Corinthians 7.14 shows that children were even baptised when only the wife came to Christ as well. This may have been the situation with Lydia. Thus, household baptisms are a proof text for infant baptism, especially when the Acts 2 passage clearly indicates the word children in it. The doctrine of household baptism is simply the age-old application of the representational principle of the covenant that we looked at earlier. Whether we think it fair or not, what Adam did affected his posterity. What Noah did affected his family. What Abraham did affected his family. Rahab's faith led to the salvation of her house. Joshua 2, 13, 18, 6, 23-25 This representational principle was true even of the yearly Passover sacrifice. Quote, Every man shall take for himself a lamb, a lamb for a household. End quote. When we baptise our children, we are declaring as Joshua did, quote, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. End quote. Joshua 24.15 And such a declaration of faith brings covenantal blessing upon the whole household. God tells Noah, quote, Come unto the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. End quote. Genesis 7.1 It was Noah's faith that resulted in their salvation. Hebrews affirms this as well. Quote, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moves with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. End quote. Hebrews 11.7 in fact, Peter thinks this representational work of Noah is precisely what baptism is all about. He applies the story of Noah to modern baptism. Quote, the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. And corresponding to that baptism now saves you, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, end quote. If children were not baptised, one would expect that the New Testament would instruct children to come to baptism when they came to the place where they made a profession of faith. Or one would at least expect that there would be a reference to a child who had grown up in a Christian home being baptised upon profession of faith. But, on the contrary, during that 40-year period that the New Testament was written, there is not the slightest whisper of a hint of children of believing parents being baptised after profession of faith. Jews were used to having their children included in the church. If that were no longer the case, we would expect that the Jews would have raised a controversy over it. They certainly raised a big controversy over every other challenge that was made. They quibbled over meat, drink, impurity, circumcision, sacrifices and a host of other rituals. 
but we never see even a hint of controversy about the removal of children from the covenant. That was because children were never removed. When one understands the abundance of positive evidence for infant baptism that has been presented in this paper, this silence of the Jews is really a deafening silence. It is unexplainable if infants were excluded from the covenant. This audio version of Seven Biblical Principles That Call for Infant Baptism has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by Nathan F. Conkey. Please visit biblicalblueprints.org to download this book or purchase a physical copy.